Welcome to the podcast of the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. I'm Bob Akashrafi. Today is April 30th, 2021, and I'm speaking with Abraham Gibson, who is a newly minted assistant professor at the University of Texas at San Antonio. He's the author of Feral Animals in the American South and Evolutionary History. Thank you for joining us, Abe. Thank you for having me. Abe, why should we focus on feral animals rather than just saying some animals were wild and then domesticated then wild again? Well, I think there is a very real distinction between wild and feral animals. After all, domestication changes an animal physically, of course, but also genetically. And for that matter, it also changes their behavior in profound ways. And so when domestic animals leave humanity's protection and establish residency in the wild, they are really becoming something different entirely. So their genome retains our fingerprints, whether or not they remain domesticated. Second, but no less important, these animals are defined by their ill-fated association with us. So every single feral animal has a history with people. And if we recover that history, then we learn something new about not only the animals, but also the people with whom they engaged or in some cases disengaged, regardless of the time period. For that matter, the way we treat wild and feral animals is dramatically different. Uh, to give you an example, I gave an invited talk at a horse sanctuary in California some years ago, and about five minutes before I go on, they asked me not to use the word feral, that I should use wild instead, and they explained that this is because it has negative connotations. And so that just gives you some idea of the distinctions that people draw real or imagined between wild and feral animals. So if we step back, can we think of domesticated animals as having been captured, tamed and bred, and then separated from their wild cousins? Yes, but I would assign different weights to each of those verbs that you just used. So captured, yes, I agree that domestication implies that we have restricted their range. Uh, but few people would consider, for example, zoo animals to be domesticated, even though they've been captured. Maybe they should, by the way. I think domestication is best understood as a spectrum, so we could talk about that. You mentioned uh, domestic animals had to be tamed. Uh, this is an important one. Uh, we have to tolerate each other's company before we get engaged, so to speak. That said, the coevolutionary perspective that I adopt in my book suggests that we are equal partners and that we have to rethink words like tamed, which implies action in only one direction. And then finally, you mentioned domestic animals have to be kept separate. And I would just point out that this one is actually a little fuzzy. Nowadays, researchers believe that domestication took generations to take hold. It wasn't achieved in one fell swoop, and in some cases may have taken hundreds, perhaps thousands of years. So there would have been significant admixture between wild and what I guess we would call proto-domestic animals at that time. But that was thousands of years ago, and nowadays, reproductive boundaries are much more tightly controlled, although, again, not perfectly so. You write in your book that humans and dogs arrived in North America together about 16,000 years ago, and then about 300 years ago, Europeans brought horses and pigs to North America, and that feral animals have a distinctive role in history in the American South. What's different about feral animals in the South? I suppose the biggest thing to remember is that the open range lasted much longer in the South than it did in other parts of the country. Whatever the reason, whether it was some combination of climate, 
culture, economics, and ecology, whatever the reason, these conditions conspired to not only facilitate, but also support large populations of feral animals. This has proven true since the colonial times. And I would just add, you, you mentioned 300 years ago, and that's uh, a reference to the English colonial period, but uh, DeSoto brought domestic animals with him uh, during his expedition in the 16th century, some of whom are suspected to have gone feral, although the evidence for that is not as strong. Uh, but there are many cultural reasons why these animals have prospered in the South. Um, and we can say more about that if you like. Yes, please do. Uh, some of your listeners may already be familiar with a book called Creatures of Empire by Virginia DeJohn Anderson. It's sort of a classic in the field of environmental history. And this book helped popularize the idea that feral animals were basically ubiquitous in English colonies. And this wasn't the original plan, I should add. When the English colonists arrived, they uh, were originally going to fence in their animals, but they found it more cost and time efficient to fence in their plants, uh, the corn, for example, that they had learned about from the Native Americans who were already here. And so fencing in the corn to protect it against these animals, whom they just let run loose, uh, effectively established the open range. And this would have begun for the southern colonies in Virginia. Uh, but each of the other colonies that I look at in my book uh, adopted the exact same practice of fencing in agricultural products, making it easier to keep animals at bay. But what that, again, effectively did is gave the animals the run of the land. And this began in the very early colonial period, early 1600s, and persisted for hundreds of years thereafter. So that's one of the reasons that the American South becomes so associated with feral animals is because it was standard practice for several centuries. And then as the human population in the American South grew, how did that affect the many feral animals living on these open commons? That's a great question. Uh, I should mention it meant different things for different species. Uh, and that's one of the things I hope my book has contributed to the literature. When we talk about the collapse of the open range in Southern history, we often talk as if it were settled with a vote. And it is true that local votes throughout the South uh, determined whether or not the legal commons was going to remain open or whether it was going to ultimately collapse in piecemeal fashion during the late 19th and early 20th centuries, which is what did happen. But what does that mean for each species? Well, uh, horses, for example, were no longer on the range by the time the legal commons had been closed. They were simply too big and too valuable. So while it is true that feral horses roamed the woods of Virginia and the Carolinas and the Florida Peninsula for some time after initial settlement, they had long since been swept off the range, uh, except for various remote islands and mountain valleys and things like that. Uh, so the range or the commons or the open range, whatever you want to call it, for horses closed much earlier than it did for other species. Pigs, for example, continued to carve out an existence even as the human population grew uh, and even after they were no longer legally allowed to do so. And I can say more about that in a moment. Dogs, the third species in my book, this one is interesting because they were always kind of free range, uh, always sort of free roaming until recently anyway. But as the number of people has grown throughout Southern history, so too has the number of dogs. But 
fewer than ever live outside and fewer than ever retain the ability to reproduce without human intervention. And so the commons, I think you can say, has closed for each of these species, although at different times and frankly, in different centuries. In your book, you write about the devastation in the South due to the Civil War, the piecemeal closing of the commons, the advent of the car. How have horses and dogs fared after the Civil War in the South? Well, they fared differently. Uh, Horses, for example, their numbers soared in the wake of the Civil War, ultimately peaking around 1920. Although, as some of your listeners may know, those uh, the number of horses plummeted thereafter, after 1920, as the number of automobiles increased and became ubiquitous throughout the South. There were exceptions, of course. Uh, some herds of feral horses persisted on various coastal islands, uh, including the Outer Banks of North Carolina, Assateague, famously, uh, as well as Cumberland Island in Georgia. And so on these islands, they have be- achieved something like mythical status and uh, much beloved cultural icons. Um, so there, the, the horse has had an up and down experience. Um, but ultimately, feral horses, uh, the, the few that remain, are prized for cultural reasons. By comparison, consider the pigs. So their numbers never really recovered in the South. Uh, they could have. They're incredibly fecund animals, and the population could have rebounded in relatively short, short order. But the reason it did not is because after the Civil War, Southerners became more entangled in national markets, and as a result, they increasingly relied on pigs that had been imported from the Midwest or the Trans-Appalachian areas. I should mention that the feral pigs, uh, even after the range closed in the South, they remained in various riverine habitats and valleys and things like that. And it was really not the Southerners, but Northern sportsmen, tourist sportsmen from the North, that is, who would come down to the South to hunt. And they were, frankly, surprised to discover that the southern region was infested, as they would put it, with feral pigs that, as they soon discovered, were apparently fun to chase and shoot. And so it wasn't southerners who originally uh, developed a taste for hunting these pigs, but rather people who came in uh, and viewed them as a sort of exotic novelty. Uh, At the exact same time, throughout the 20th century, biologists increasingly decried feral pigs as invasive. And so you would think that maybe these two factors might have reinforced each other, that after 50 or 100 years of targeting feral pigs from recreational hunters, perhaps that would have helped curb their numbers. And yet what we see is that just the opposite has happened. So over the past 20 or 30 years, as pigs, feral pigs have become increasingly uh, more popular among recreational hunters, their numbers have skyrocketed. And so what you see is that it depends on the numbers you look at, but something like 40 or 45 states have feral pigs now, dramatically uh, higher than it was just 20 or 30 years ago. The population is more than doubled what it was 20 or 30 years ago. And again, the reason is because hunters who enjoy hunting feral pigs take these animals and translocate them around various parts of not only the South, but really across the United States thereby allowing the animal to spread. And so what you have are these competing interests where biologists would like to see 
feral pigs eliminated, frankly, so that they could help restore a healthy ecology, a healthy ecosystem. And hunters who you might think would contribute to that because they, after all, like to shoot pigs, uh, actually making the problem much worse because it is precisely their desire to shoot these pigs uh, that they don't want to give up. And as a result, the uh, number of feral pigs has exploded and continues to do so uh, to this day. In light of the history you've recounted in your book, what does that tell us? How should we think about feral animals today? Well, I think it will help if we remember that we are still creating them. Uh, On the one hand, yes, they owe their existence in the wild to some former previous relationship with humans, but it's also true that they are in most cases there because we want them there or because the decisions we make result in them being there, whether it's horses who we want uh, to be there so that they can be romanticized or pigs so that they can be hunted, for lack of a better word. And uh, in terms of dogs, it's really a matter of your definition of feral. If an animal is surrendered to a local animal shelter, that bond with humans, or at least with its initial human, has been broken. Does that count as feral? That's a discussion that a lot of people have. Uh, Another thing to think about, how should we think about feral animals, is do we owe them anything? After all, they owe their existence and their plight to humans, their presence in the wild to humans. And so the question becomes, do we have any obligation to these animals on whom we once depended? And the third thing I guess I would mention is just that it's helpful to think about feral animals because they complicate things. It's less of a black and white world and more gray. So these animals are at once domesticated and wild. At the same time, they are neither domesticated nor wild. And so they uh, complicate our traditional understanding of what is artificial and what is natural. Uh, And so for these, among many other reasons, uh, have enjoyed and would encourage others to study feral animals. Abe, we sent your book to a reader who very much enjoyed it and recorded some questions for you. Hello, this is Simon Joseph and I used to work at the consortium when it was still merely a center. I thoroughly enjoyed the book and found it full of small, fascinating facts that I also enjoyed sharing with others. It was a real treat reading your book, finishing a chapter, and then immediately talking about it with a friend or family member. Additionally, I really appreciated that you put in the end-of-chapter summaries, which I feel like a lot of nonfiction books should start doing if they aren't already. I am not a trained historian. I'm merely a lay person in all of this, so I'm going to throw you some softball questions here, but hopefully they turn into something a little interesting. First up, when I think of feral animals, specifically feral dogs, pigs, and horses, I think of the feral horses that roam around in Montana and all that sort of thing. I think of the 30 to 50 feral hogs tweet that went viral a few years ago. And I think of those dogs that commute on the Russian subway systems. Were there any feral populations of any species that you wanted to explore but would not fit in your book? I can only imagine what information you've come across about either feral chickens or feral sheep in the South or, say, feral pigs or feral dogs outside of the South that might be something to share that just didn't quite fit. Yeah, that's a great question. First, Simon, let me say thank you for the kind words. So in early versions of this book, I tried to include the history of feral donkeys in the American Southwest. They have this really fascinating story about the animal perspective on mining booms out west. 
I cut that from the book, but I have elsewhere written about the plight of the donkey or the burro, as they are known uh, out west by their Spanish name. Likewise, uh, the book also at one point included an entire chapter on the Burmese pythons who now live in the Everglades. I was intrigued by this idea that pet snakes are captive, but not really domesticated. And so how does that affect concepts of ferality, for example? Uh, you briefly mentioned chickens. There are other examples, free-range chickens in Key West, very famous population. Likewise, there are free-range chickens in Fitzgerald, Georgia. So these are uh, relatively locally famous populations that raise new questions about ferality and what exactly qualifies as wild and that sort of thing. Uh, I should mention that uh, the chapter on Burmese pythons, uh, although it ended up on the cutting room floor, I was recently offered a, an advanced contract from University Press of Florida to explore that topic in greater detail. And so while it didn't make it into this first book, uh, hopefully I'll be able to expand on some of those ideas. And, I, and I'll just close by saying that I ultimately decided to focus on dogs, horses, and pigs for the book because I felt that each of them provided a different perspective on ferality. Abe, Simon has a second question for you. I have a quick question about mules as manufactured animals. I found that a very interesting distinction, and it really made my brain flip for a second. I was wondering if you could talk more about the idea of manufactured animals, whether it be mules specifically or something else that I might not have considered in that realm. Sure, yeah. Uh, mules are fascinating for a lot of different reasons. Uh, and yes, the fact that they wouldn't exist if not for human intervention is perhaps most fascinating of all. You asked for other examples, and my mind goes immediately to purebred dogs. Humans have lived alongside dogs for more than 10,000 years, but dog breeds as such are a relatively recent phenomenon. Most of the breeds with which we're familiar were first cultivated, or one could say manufactured, in the late 19th century over in England. Even so-called ancient breeds are actually recent creations shaped by breeders to resemble ancient phenotypes. And we know that this intensive breeding infrastructure is a human artifact and that breeds would not exist in the absence of human control. And in fact, that's one of the points that Alfred Russell Wallace was keen to emphasize. So everyone knows that Darwin cited domesticated animals when he formulated his theory of natural selection, but relatively few people know that Wallace actually cited feral animals. He reasoned that highly artificial lap dogs would not fare well under natural conditions, and so he arrived at natural selection via a different route. Returning to your original question, I agree that the concept of manufactured animals is totally fascinating, and I guess I would just add that the Anthropogenic selection is now so ubiquitous that perhaps all domestic animals are actually manufactured. Very interesting. Abe Simon has a final question for you about your methods as a historian. I have a question about the sources you used at the consortium. I'm no historian, and I don't quite know about digging in archives and all that good sort of stuff. And I was wondering what records you used through the consortium to build the narrative that you built in your book. I can only imagine what sort of paperwork you went through to find out about something I wouldn't have even imagined people wrote down. Right. So you have to remember... Every chapter looks at a different era in Southern history, and that means they each build on different types of sources. So for the colonial chapter, I spent a lot of time looking at colonial records in the South, from Virginia to Florida. 
Uh, also spent a fair amount of time with naturalists like William Bartram and Mark Catesby, among others, who wrote about the southern frontier and therefore had a lot to say about ferality. For the antebellum chapter, I primarily utilized agricultural journals. Edmund Ruffin was perhaps the most astute agriculturalist in the antebellum south, and he wrote at length about feral animals. It's interesting, we now think of him as the arch-southerner, in part because he literally wrapped himself in the Confederate flag when he killed himself, but he was also a man of means, which means he had more in common with his northern enemies than his impoverished southern neighbors, and this was especially obvious when it came to agriculture and, more specifically, feral animals. Uh, by the late 19th century, the fate of each species was starting to diverge, and that necessarily affects the sources that I was using in the last several chapters. So for pigs, I combed through a bunch of sporting journals uh, because this period witnessed the rise of recreational hunting. For horses, I spent a lot of time combing through local records in places like Chincoteague, Virginia, the Outer Banks of North Carolina, and Cumberland Island off the coast of Georgia, where the few remaining feral populations of horses in the south still roam. Uh, I could go on, but the point is that you have to think creatively when you study the history of feral animals, and I'm happy to report that the consortium has all of the resources that I just mentioned, usually in pristine condition, and so it's the perfect place for a sprawling project like this. Thank you, Abe, for sharing your work and your perspectives with us. Thanks for the opportunity. The book is Feral Animals in the American South, an Evolutionary History from Cambridge University Press by Abraham Gibson. This has been a podcast from the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. You can find more resources for exploring this topic, other podcasts, video lectures, archival spotlights, as well as opportunities to connect with our community of scholars at chstm.org. This podcast is made possible with the generous support of the Pew Charitable Trusts, the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, and the Rita Allen Foundation.